This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Today is the first presentation in support of our One Book, One College selection, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Our speaker today is Dr. Bernard Heilixer. Dr. Heilixer is of Ingalls Memorial Hospital, and he will discuss ethics in medicine. I want to be brief. He has an incredible background that I could go through to prep you for this, but I want to give really the speaker the time to talk. Uh, his specialty is emergency medicine and medical ethics. He has led special responses to crisis in Haiti and also following Hurricane, also following Hurricane Katrina. You can tell I don't sing at weddings, right? I keep moving from the mic. Um, since announcing this event, I heard from two faculty members who both knew Dr. Heilixer. Um, one used to work with him in an ER setting, and the other was a social friend. And both of them told me that we couldn't have a better speaker on this topic, which was very reassuring. Okay. And the former co-worker said that... Um, he's an example of someone who practices ethical treatment and decision-making on a daily basis, which was really reassuring. <laughs> okay. Um, in my own contact with Dr. Heilixer, I asked if he would require audiovisual support, such as an Internet connection, show a film, PowerPoint. And what he said is, I'll be fine with a podium and a microphone. I prefer an interactive discussion. And I thought, hmm. When has a physician ever said that to me before? So I just want to thank you for that experience. And with that, will you join me in welcoming Dr. Bernie Heilixer. Hi, I'd much rather he trash me and then I'd have to come up to it and there would be nothing to expect. Can you guys hear me all right in the back? Is that good? Okay. Well, I want to thank the, the college for asking me to uh, speak to you guys. Um, what we'll be talking about is understanding ethical dilemmas in medicine and what do you guys really need to know. And I, I do prefer an interactive type thing. So if I can get you guys to argue with each other, throw stuff at each other, at me, whatever, that's good. Because there will be more than one way to resolve any of these dilemmas that we talk about and different things that we do. Uh, I understand we're getting taped, so I've got to kind of keep it fairly clean. So I apologize in advance for that. <coughs> But if you guys have any questions at any time, please raise your hand. There's no such thing as a stupid or dumb question. Okay? Again, can you hear me all right? It's kind of an open thing. Okay, good. Uh, how many of you guys are involved in uh, health-related fields? Just Whoa. Okay, good. Um, how many guys are not? Just a couple here and there. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to give you a lot of cases as we talk, and they're all true cases. Everything I'm going to tell you is true cases that we've experienced at one time or other. So you've got this 80-year-old guy. He's in acute respiratory distress. He's having difficulty breathing. He's fatiguing. If you've been in a clinical setting, you know what I'm talking about. The guy's like that. He's just having trouble breathing. He's got a history of emphysema. His wife is frantic. Now, a lot of the things I'm going to tell you are going to be related to critical care medicine. As an ER doc and I'm medical director for South Dakota County MS, I kind of think in that direction a lot, but this would apply to any setting in medicine. So 
he's, the wife is frantic. She's all over the place. Oh, you know, take care of him. Don't let him die. And the guy is saying to you, you know, just make me comfortable. Don't put another tube down my throat. I've been there before. I don't want it to happen again. And he points to his healing tracheostomy scar, which means he's been intubated. He's had a tube down his throat. And it's difficult to get those patients off the ventilator. He doesn't want it again. She says, do whatever it takes to keep him alive. He says, I lived a good life. Please let me go. I don't want to be on a ventilator again. Hey, you know, I can't even go take a leak without pulling my oxygen with me. I've lived a good life. Let things go. She says, do everything or I'm going to sue you. I've got a cousin who's a lawyer. Everybody's got a cousin who's a lawyer. Everybody's going to want to sue you no matter what. So that's, you know, all the time. It's snowing outside. If you're out in, say you're out in, it's your, it's your neighbor across the street. You can't get to the hospital in time. What are you going to do? How many of you guys would, if put in that situation, the physician passed out, you're in charge? Okay. How many guys are going to put a tube down his throat and be aggressive in resuscitation as opposed to honoring his wishes with his wife screaming and yelling at you? How many guys are going to tube him, put a tube down his throat and be aggressive contrary to his wishes? How many guys? Okay. Good. How many guys are going to honor his wishes and not do anything? Okay. How many guys are going to wait for shift change? Okay. Okay. That's a, we'll get back to this case. That's just kind of a light case to get you started. Uh, ethical dilemmas are all, they're all around us. Anytime I give an ethics talk, I kind of just check out and see what's going on in the world uh, you know, in the last couple of days, because invariably there's material out there. It's, they'll be there in our own personal lives. It'll be there in our professional lives. So uh, I would like to advance our ability to handle these cases. There's a lot of new scientific knowledge out there. Ethical dilemmas are only getting more and more, and we'll be talking about that. Uh, what are some of the things that are out there that you've read about, seen on television, things that have, in the last year or two, anything you guys think about? Dilemmas. Yeah, ethical dilemmas. Euthanasia. Euthanasia, okay. Are any that's mercy killing? And there's different types. There's passive euthanasia, where we let the patient go. There's aggressive euthanasia, where we actually take care of business. Any place in this country you can do it? Uh, Oregon and very good. Oregon and Washington have uh, legalized euthanasia. Okay, it can happen. It can happen. Never know when it's going to come up on the ballot in Illinois. These things can happen all the time. What other things are out there? Termination of pregnancy, abortion, certainly, and unfortunately, political and religious factors get in the way of medicine. And personally, I think they have no place in medicine. That's what the legal system is about, to make it right or wrong. But, you know, those are things that are out there. We can talk a little bit, if time permitting, about everybody familiar with the Terry Schiavo case? A couple of years ago, two years ago in Florida, what was going on? Horrendous case, ridiculous case. Politics got in the way, religion got in the way. Everything was appropriate with the care and treatment of that patient, but other factors. And we have time, we'll talk about that a little bit. How about genetic testing? You're applying for a new job. You have to get some blood work to get your insurance. You guys may have had that happen. And part of the deal is, besides checking to see if you've got diabetes, they want to see if you're going to have cardiac disease when you turn 60. Genetic markers are out there that can be, you know, there's a pretty good chance they'll be right. Do you want them to know that? Because what's going to happen? You ain't getting that position, right? 
Okay. It's illegal. The Clinton administration made it happen that that was illegal. Do we all really believe it's not happening? Okay. Got to be careful with that. What about cloning? How many guys want another you? How many guys want another you? A couple of reasons. One, someone to talk to. But what about a farm team for organs? What about a farm team for organs? Okay. I get older. My liver gets bad. My kidneys get bad. I've got a clone. I can maybe get another organ. It actually happens. A, a family will have a child with some type of genetic defect or some type of problem, and they will indeed have another child for the express purpose of perhaps getting a kidney for their other child. So uh, the way I look at it, um, I'm an only child, so this is easy, but my wife's got six siblings, and we go to Des Moines for Thanksgiving. Don't tell her I said this, Mark. Um, <laughs> we go to Des Moines for Thanksgiving all the time, and it's a typical uh, Woody Allen type of thing. Here I am sitting there with all these people, and I see all these other people. I look up from the table across from me. I see who's sitting there. I look at the people. I'm not in favor of cloning. <laughs> think, think about that next time you're in a family setting. Okay, um, we mentioned about assisted suicide, euthanasia. It's kind of interesting. There's a movie out there. It was up for Academy Award. Uh, somebody won regarding Kevorkian, and somebody gave a, an impassioned speech when they got their, uh, their uh, Academy Award, and the fool had no idea what he was talking about, but nevertheless, it was out there. Health reform. Is that an ethical dilemma? Is that out there? Big time. Big time, and still evolving. And I'd like, as we go along, to talk about that. You know, is it, uh, is it right that 44 million people in this country do not have health insurance? Is it a right or a privilege? Something to think about, okay? You know, if something happens now, God forbid, when you guys get sick, call 911, the paramedics show up, somebody sticks you up, police show up, buildings burning, firemen show up. It's expected, right? It's a right. Uh, what about medical care? Is it a privilege? You know, stuff. We can talk about that a little more. Stem cell research. That's out there. Something that's, you know, it's, it's a very good thing medically, but a lot of religious overtones. And in this country, when it's a religious overtone, it becomes a political overtone because nobody wants to piss off people who might vote for them. So it depends on where in the country you are and what your elector it is. So, okay, those are some of the things that are out there. Um, also, one that you might think about, and I had the experience with this, going to Louisiana for Katrina and just uh, six or seven months ago to, ha to Haiti and not having the resources to treat people. In this country, there's a paradigm. We take care of you, right? You're sick, you're going to get medical care. Eventually, it might be a little later, but you're going to get medical care. We did not have resources there to treat everybody. And certain patients that we had certain resources for, we could not give to them because it would be too labor-intensive denying 10 other people from getting certain things. And we had to let those patients die. So those are things that are out there, and they become very, very uh, profound. But you can have personal things in your, uh, in your practices or in your lives, and the things that we need to be thinking about in advance. Because if you're in the medical profession and the stuff shows up, you need to think about it in advance so you know what to do. You don't have time to run to the library. If you work these things out in your own minds in advance, it might be helpful. Now, I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of philosophical stuff because then you'll be, you know, sleeping in five minutes. But you, can go to the, you can go to your philosophy classes and sleep there. But um, I would like to just give you some basic things. And again, I want you guys to argue. Now, in the medical profession, and most of you guys are in medicine one way or another, what are some of the issues that might evolve of an ethics nature? 
Think of some of the things you might be confronted with. End of life decisions, probably the most important. What do we do when it's time to let go? Or not. I just got a phone call this morning for a case up in intensive care at Ingalls. Some lady with a lot of bad medical problems had a cardiac arrest in the field. Our paramedics resuscitated him. That's good. Lady's up in ICU. She's only been there 24 hours. She has no advanced directive, and the family wants to remove life support. Should we do it? A lot, of answers, a lot of questions to be answered there, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But that's pretty much the heavy that we hear. Um, you've heard about death squads. You guys been, you know, the previous election. Uh, Sarah Palin was going around saying that Obama's thing required death squads, that we're going to sit down and decide whether Granny gets cared for or not. Um, the earth is flat, what could I tell you? you know, um, there are no death squads. Those of you who are familiar with what I'm talking about, there's no death squads. It's the right thing to do to talk to patients. What do they want done when the time comes? What do the families feel about these things? It's not a death squad. No medical care would be taken away from anybody. That's just hocus pocus for political reasons, obviously. Um, informed consent. One of you guys winds up in the emergency room. We say, we've got to do an operation on you. Something's wrong, we've got to take care of you. Do you want to know what's wrong? Do you want to know what I'm going to do to you? Do you want to know what the complications could be? That's called informed consent. On the same hand, what about our guy with respiratory distress? And he says, you know, I don't want you to do it. Does he have the right of informed refusal? Yeah. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. These are the things that we, you're going to find in your, in your practices, definitely. Uh, disclosure, truth-telling. Okay? Say you're, going to, you're a nurse. And it's 3 in the morning. Your patient had a biopsy earlier in the day. No one's told them the result. They call you in. You've got a good rapport with them. And they say, do I have cancer? What are you going to answer? You can't answer. That's what you're told to do. Now, you've got rapport with this patient. You know, you feel for them. There's an emotional attachment. You know, you know what the, the biopsy showed, that they have cancer. And yet, you're gonna, what's your answer? Well, I can't tell you. You'll have to talk it over with your doctor. Right Now, what does the patient think? If she, he or she ain't telling me, obviously I got cancer. Obviously nobody wants to tell me, which means I'm going to be isolated in a vacuum until somebody sits down and does talk to me. Or the family says, don't tell them. Well, if the family says don't tell them, and you know, patients are stupid, they know what's going on, so now this patient will die in a vacuum. Is that right? Obviously not. So these are issues that you're going to have to deal with. Allocation of resources. Rationing. Okay. Uh, bad car crash on the side of the road, who gets the helicopter? Who goes to the trauma center? You're in Haiti, who gets the ventilator when you only have one for an entire thousand bed hospital? Okay. Things that you've got to make decisions on. Part of the, uh, the health care reform that's out there will require some rationing. Do we want that? things to think about. So all these are issues that are in medicine that you're going to be confronted with and others as they develop as we get more sophisticated. So I want you to be aware of some things. Why has all this come out? Just some little history on it. It's basically mistrust. You know, If you're going to be involved in the medical field, you are the lottery. Every patient is looking for the lottery on you. You screw up, they hit the lottery. Okay? You're going to get sued. There's no tort reform in Illinois right now. Not a good thing. But why is there mistrust? Let's look at some of the history. And that entails some of the things of why you're having these seminars okay, on Henrietta Lacks. That's the reason why. Because what has happened historically that only shows more why there's mistrust of us? Well, start out with Tuskegee. Everybody know about the Tuskegee? 
experiments. You know, let's get a bunch of black prisoners, let's give them syphilis, let's trace the natural course of the disease, and let's not tell them about it and get consent from them. It's not a very nice thing to do. Couldn't do it now, but back then it happened. That create, when it came out, it created mistrust. People would, I wouldn't believe anyone with that. There was experiments done in Willowbrook. Willowbrook is, uh, was, was a hospital in Staten Island. Staten Island is one of the five boroughs of New York City. I ain't got my New York accent. Mari's picking it up a little bit. She's got some of the Brooklyn accent. So that's why I love talking to her. But, you know, it was out there. This hospital took care of children who could not be cared for in outpatient settings or at home. And what happened is that back in, the, in that time, virtually 80-90% of these kids wound up with hepatitis. So they decided to do some experiments on hepatitis. And they went to the parents and they said, okay, your kid's got an 80% chance of getting hepatitis here in the hospital, but we're going to set up a separate ward where there's a guaranteed chance that they're 100% we're going to make sure they get hepatitis so we can follow the disease, but they will get special care for it. As a parent, what would you opt for? 80%, 90% chance with Adequate care, 100% chance, but I'm going to get better care. Obviously, don't eat the applesauce if you know hepatitis is spread. But what would you do? Now, who speaks for these children? Was it right to speak for these children like that? Is that the right thing? People were mistrusting because this was going on and we didn't know about it. With Henrietta Lacks, if you had an opportunity to look at the book or just read some of the summaries of it, here's a lady who didn't know that her cells were being used and now have been used for phenomenal things in medicine. And yet she and her family still could not get good health care in this country. Is something inappropriate about that? You know? She should be queen. You know, let alone she ain't getting medical care. So these things are out there and that certainly would cause a lot of mistrust. Before most of you guys were born in the sixties, great time to grow up. Age of empowerment. Things were happening. We were protesting. We were doing a lot of stuff that was kind of fun. The Civil Rights Movement. People wanted to be empowered. Why not? They had that right. The Rights of the Disabled. Americans with Disab Disabilities Act came out during that time. People wanted to be empowered. Again, what is the strongest voting group in this country? Who are the politicians not going to mess with? You got it. Don't mess with the purple-haired ladies. They vote. They are not going to screw with them. Up until this last election, who, didn't, who never voted? You guys. Okay? Now you guys voted. Things are happening. That's why you got to vote. Okay? But you didn't vote, so they didn't care. That's why things happened. That may not have been to your choosing. But they never messed with the purple-haired ladies. So AARP, those groups got involved, and they're the ones who wanted to have that, in, that entitlement and the rights for them. Uh, as was mentioned, the uh, pro-life, um, pro-choice arguments came out there. Very strong arguments on all sides. And, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled on that. And that should be in the courts. It shouldn't be, you know, not blowing up people, obviously. But th if there's a desire for change, it should be through the courts. Okay, so a couple of principles you should be aware of. You might see it in some books. You might read about it a little bit. Just brief thing on it. Something called, and these are the, if there is a conflict between these principles, then you've got an ethical dilemma. First one's called autonomy. Okay? You have a right to self-rule. You have a right to have the treatment you want. You all got that right, and I think you all want it. You don't want someone making a decision for you if you have the ability to make it. So patients have that right. It's a constitutional right. You have a constitutional right to be an idiot. 
Okay? I think we see that every day. Okay? No matter what you're looking at on the media or amongst your friends or whatever, you have a constitutional right to be an idiot. It's, it's good and it's there. This implies also informed consent, as we talked about, and informed refusal. That's under autonomy, the ability to make decisions for yourselves. Anybody ever hear of advanced directives? Okay. It's like living will or a power of attorney for health care. I'll go over it briefly in a little bit. Be aware of it. Be aware of it. It's something you should all be aware of. Fortunately, it should not be in your lives right now, but with your families and potentially with your own lives down the road. These are things that need to be discussed. So we will talk about that. Um, how many of you guys have one by chance? Whoa. Very good. Very good. I just prior to coming here, I gave a talk to residents up at Christ. Out of about 30, only two had an advanced directive. You know, you have a constitutional right to be an idiot. They, I mean, what's, these are docs. And the other ones who are bitching about patients who don't have one, they didn't have them. So it's good that you guys have them. Okay. Beneficence. That's the second one. Beneficence really means we want to do what's in the patient's best interest. That's why you want to be in the medical field. You want to help people. You want to, hopefully that's why you want to help people. You want to take care of them. Beneficence is you want to contribute to the welfare of the patient. You know what's best for them. Do you see a potential conflict between autonomy and beneficence? Okay. I want to do what's in your best interest because I think I know a little bit about it. You want something that's totally contrary to it. We have a dilemma. Who prevails? Who trumps? Autonomy leads. Okay? Okay. Uh, another term for this is p paternalism, but that's not gender appropriate. So to be gender neutral, we'll call it parentalism. That we have, you know, we want to do it in your best interest. The third one is called non-maleficence. Kind of a fancy word. Um, non-maleficence really means, based on the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. Don't get in the way. First, do no harm. My first day in medical school, a guy gets up there and he says, oh, I don't forget it, it's something I, I follow with. 90%, I know, 90% of your patients are going to get better if you just don't get in the way. 7%, you'll probably do something for. And 3%, you might actually really help. Always keep that in mind. Don't get in the way of things. But when you got it, I mean, if you come with a gunshot wound, you're not in the 90%. Yeah, you'll be in my 3%, but, you know, keep that in mind for basic things. So what goes under non-maleficence? Withholding or withdrawal of treatment can be synonymous. You can use them both. You can take away stuff. You can not initiate it. Obviously, better not to initiate it if it's going to wind up being a problem down the road. Also gets into quality of life. Okay, you've all heard the term, familiar. What, what's, who determines your quality of life? Your doc, right? Should any physician know what's best for you and what to do? How many guys agree with that? All right, good. Don't listen to everything I'm saying, man. Okay. No. Who determines quality of life? You do. Not your. A How many guys belong to an HMO? Your mental health insurance is an. I hope I'm not saying anything bad. Yeah. So what? Um, HMOs. What's the function of an HMO? Well, it's not. It's really referrals. The purpose of an HMO is n it's really not managed care, it's managed reimbursement. They're saying what they're going to pay. I mean, you're still going to get the care, it's just going to come out of your pocket. It's managed reimbursement. That's what they do. So, if you have an, anybody ever hear of an APGAR score? Okay, that's, you know, you do when, you get bo when you're born, get it right away, then you get in five minutes, you know, they calculate it up, make sure you're okay. Just think what your, AFG what your HMO doc would do right after you're born. You'd all be do not resuscitate. <laughs> Think about that a little bit. 
Okay. Okay. Third, the fourth one is called um, not is called justice, and justice is really fairness in medicine. Who gets treated? Who doesn't? Rationing medicine. Okay. Those are decisions that are very difficult decisions that we do have to make all the time. I've got to make that decision in emergency department all the time. Who gets that intensive care bed? Who has to wait? Who do I, I mean, get a situation, I get three gunshots come at the same time. Who am I going to take care of first? Okay. I'm in, I'm in Louisiana and I got 32 patients who have not had their dialysis for a week and I don't have dialysis available. Who do I give it to first when it becomes available? Okay. Or I got a thousand patients in Port-au-Prince and who do I treat first? Many with machete wounds. You get the idea. Who do you treat? What do you do? So if there's a conflict in any of these, we need to be aware. Throw in something else. Last year, just about this time, H1N1 flu. What if we had a thousand patients came in, all needed to be on a ventilator? You all heard about the, the isolated cases. Thank God there weren't too many. But what if we had a thousand people need to be on a ventilator? How many we got? We don't have enough. You got maybe four, five, ten in a hospital right now. 24-hour Juul does not have it. You know, what would we do? These are issues that you'd have to address. So, any questions with this stuff so far? Please, raise your hand if you've got questions. Okay, well, let's get into informed refusal a little bit. This is becoming a greater dilemma. And if you, you need to know to consent for something or refuse something, you need to know what I want to do to you. You've got to know your condition. You've got to know the prognosis. You've got to know what I want to do to you, what good can come of it, what bad can come of it, what are complications. You've got to know the alternative treatments. What else could we do? What good can come of that? What bad can come of that? What's going to happen if I don't do anything at all? Okay? You have to have a value system to comprehend what I'm talking about, and you have to do this coercion-free. You don't want to go up and talk to a patient who's got three family members leaning over him and say, well, would you like us to initiate chemotherapy? Yeah, we, she wants the chemotherapy. You know, whoa. Step outside, folks. Let me talk to the patient by themselves. Because a lot of people will say things to please their family. You guys do it. You know, they'll see in the family's eyes they want something. Give them a chance. Give them a chance, you know. Let them do it on their own. And those are the things they need to know. You'd want to know, wouldn't you? Your patients are going to want to know, too. Okay, some more type of things. How many of you guys are competent? Who's competent? Raise your hand if you're competent. Okay. How many of you guys have decision-making capacity? Okay. Who who's not competent? Okay. Who, det <laughs> who determines competency? You hear the term all the time. If you're working in a hospital, you'll always hear them say, you know, especially in the emergency department, this is drunk and you want to get rid of him because of his pain. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's competent to make a decision and leave against medical advice. Who determines competency? Very good. It is a legal determination. A judge, if you can find a sober one, a judge <laughs> determines competency. Okay? If a judge determines competency which means, by default, you are all, de all you're all right now, you're all, right, you're all right now competent. Just, you are all competent right now. It's presumed you're all competent. If somebody takes, takes to court to try and challenge your competency and you're declared incompetent, what happens? They appoint a guardian. 
can be a permanent guardian. It could be a guardian ad litem, a temporary guardian, but for maybe for a temporary period of time. But right now, you guys are all competent. Who, what about decision-making capacity? Who determines decision-making capacity? That's my show. A physician determines decision-making capacity. So, that drunk in the emergency department, we're not determining competency, we're determining decision-making capacity. Can this person make a medical decision based on the knowledge that we talked about, informed consent or refusal, can they make that decision or they cannot? So if you've got a guy who's really blitzed and he, can't, you know, he don't know what's going on, he lacks decision-making capacity. If he has full decisional capacity and his alcohol level is below a certain amount, he can go. Okay? You can't throw him out because he smells. A lot of people would like to. A lot of people do do that. It's wrong. It's very unethical. It's still a human being. Okay? So we've got to remember that. Any questions with that? <clears throat> advanced directives. Okay? Two of you guys got advanced directives. should be aware of this. Uh, it's a, what it is is really a mechanism to maintain your autonomous beliefs when you lack decision-making capacity. What that means is that right now it's your show. If for some reason I don't have the ability to make that decision, somebody is appointed or I have signed off on some documentation to allow those decisions to be made. Pretty logical idea, isn't it? But there's some dangers with this that you need to be aware about. First of all, make sure you talk to your family so they know what you want, if God forbid it comes to that. Also, make sure you talk to your doc. Make sure your physician knows what you want. That'll make life a lot easier for everybody. The different types. Anybody know the different types of advanced directive? I mentioned them before. Living will. Power of attorney, health care, and a living will. Start out with a living will. Living will is a nice document. Uh, AARP really pushes it. They like it because, again, it's empowerment. And all this stuff does not require a lawyer. You can go to a lawyer, pay him $400 to have him just give you the forms. This stuff is out there. It's on the Internet. We actually at the hospital have a pad that has the paperwork. Just rip it off, have it filled out, and have it signed off on, witnessed appropriately. So a living will. Some of the things that go into a living will require that your attending physician, and in some states it's two docs, it requires your attending physician determine that you have no hope for a meaningful recovery, and that's your terminal. So ball game's over. Your doc says, okay, ball game's over. You know, it's got to be a doc, it's a, an attending physician. And then we can remove mo almost everything. We can remove a ventilator. You all, everybody know what a ventilator is? You know, innovative ventilator. We can remove a ventilator. We can remove dialysis, we can remove antibiotics, we don't have to give you transfusions, all that good stuff. Does anybody know what the one medical modality is that unless specifically put on your document, we can't take away? What's that? Tube feeding. Tube feeding, very good. Artificial nutrition and hydration, exactly. So if God forbid the ceiling falls on your head and you're knocked unconscious with severe brain injury, and EMS comes here, we do all the fancy stuff, we resuscitate you, you're in the hospital, and you have a living will. Can I take away your ventilator if your doc determines that you have no hope of a meaningful recovery? Yes. Can I take away medications we're giving you? Can I take away your feeding tube? No. 
I still, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I put it in this context so you'll remember it, I still have to water you twice a day. Okay? So do you see where it becomes a weak document, that it's really not that good? It's, it's okay, but not that great. Okay? What about a power of attorney for health care? Anybody know what a power of attorney for health care is? You appoint somebody. You appoint somebody to be your agent. It's called an agent. You appoint them. Does it have to be your spouse? No. no. They may think they are. They may think they're your... Is that your legal guardian? No. They may think they are, but they're not. It can be anybody. And what you really want is your soulmate, don't you? You want somebody who can make very difficult decisions on your behalf when you're unable to make those decisions. So you've got a couple who's been married 52 years. Kind of hard for, their, for them to make those decisions to, say, remove life support. They may be able to, but often you're better off having a less passioned person to make those decisions. Get a niece or a nephew, talk to them, and let them be your power of attorney for health care, or a good friend who can make the decisions for you when you cannot. Now, you can see the difference here that that power of attorney for health care is empowered to make all decisions when you cannot. All decisions. You can remove the ventilator. I can remove dialysis. I can remove tube feeding. I can withhold tube feeding. That person whom you appoint as an agent can make any decision that you would make on your own. They are you. That's good. See the difference? Ceiling falls on your head. You've got a living will. It's still got a war to you. You've got a power of attorney for health care? I can go to that person and ask them what would they want. That's why you should communicate this information to to your family or whoever you appoint. It's very, very important that you do that. Now, when you go to that agent and you ask them what would the person want, you tell them not what do you want, what do you think they would want as a substitute judgment. I've done, I do this very often with ethics consultations, and you go to the family, you don't say, what do you want? Yeah, I want the patient to get up the, off the bed and dance out of here. Not going to happen. Probably not going to happen. So what have they told you? That takes away the guilt element. You just say to them, what would they want you to do? As a final act of love, be an advocate for them. What do you think they would want you to do if they could tell you what to do? If they had an out-of-body experience and they looked down at themselves now and saw the way they are with tubes everywhere, what would they tell you to do? They might say, he's a fighter. Okay. Got to continue beating him up. He would never want to be like that. Okay. That help. You help them get that. You see how you can help somebody get the decision? It's a lot easier that way, and you, don't want, to, you, you want to resuscitate the family because we probably can't do it for the patient. Okay. Now, for the 95% of you guys who don't have an advanced directive, a power of attorney for health care or a living will, and remember, these documents can easily be filled out. They need to, if you're ever playing in a, as a medical person, don't witness it. Get somebody as an outsider to do the witnessing of those documents. Shouldn't do it if you're actively taking care of the patient. Okay, for the rest of you guys, in Illinois, they're pretty sharp. We got what's called the Illinois Health Care Surrogate Act. And what that means is the state has actually given, it's a legal, docu legal thing, they have prescribed a pecking order of who would be your decision maker if you don't have one. That's a pretty good idea, isn't it? Starts out with, living, with a legal guardian, and then it goes to spouse, then it goes to adult children, majority rules. And an 18-year-old has as much say as a 30-year-old. Okay? Then it goes to siblings, 
parents, um, aunts, uncles, niece, nephews, grandparents, down to good friend. So you got a 90-year-old lady. She comes in from a nursing home. She's really messed up, really bad. She has no decision-making capacity. Family has either abandoned her or they, they've died off. Who's a decision-maker for poor little lady? She's got a friend who comes to visit once a week. That can be the decision-maker for her. So it's a pretty good law. Now, if you've got a situation where, say, there's no spouse and the kids are arguing. Say you've got four kids, two want to remove life support, two don't. Or you've got a situation where three are saying, remove life support, one is saying, no, don't let them go. Invariably, the last person in from the furthest distance is the one who makes the biggest stink because they feel the most guilty they haven't taken care of the patient. Okay? But what would you do then? Three are saying remove life support. One is saying don't. Under the Illinois Health Care Surrogate Act? Straight answer. What option does the one have? What was the first rung on the ladder? Legal guardian. They can go for guardianship. They can petition the courts, go for guardianship, and say to a judge, those three are, you know, they're looking at the life insurance policy, whatever. I want to, you know, I want to become the legal guardian and I'll, so I can make the decision. They would then, if so appointed, would then have authority over everybody else. So it's a pretty good law. See how it works out? We had a case once where I had 12 children. 11 were, this guy, it's an interesting story, but he needed to go for emergency surgery. They all said, sure, get him to surgery. One screwball daughter, this crackpot, wouldn't want to let him go. Don't let him go. Why? She's, she's wacko. And they didn't want to let, he, she was blocking the room to let him go. And I, I was actually coming home from a wedding in Michigan. They paged me. They in a t and, a, and the guy had to go surgery. It was bleeding out. And I said, simple answer, get security, escort her ass off the campus. <laughs> That's easy. You know, but those things can happen. But there are legal ma manners to make it better. Okay, true story. I was doing a fellowship at, in medical ethics at USC 16 years ago. I get called as a consult to check out this poor guy. He's about 45. He had a brain stem stroke. He's not going to wake up. He's on a ventilator. He's totally unresponsive. His wife was terribly grieving. She was just suffering. She had a couple of kids. It's a horrible, very tragic situation. And the decision was to be whether or not to remove life support. While I'm talking to her about all this, and they did not, she did not have, she was not the power of attorney for health care or anything like that. In comes a 22-year-old female. Some of you guys got where this is going? Okay. She, 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 prances, she prances in, you know, prances in this 20-year-old female. Um, and the wife says, hi, how are you? And she says, hello, I'm so-and-so. I work with your husband. Oh, how nice of you to come visit. Da, da, da. Now, I'm the power of attorney for health care. His, yeah, his um, girlfriend yeah. was his uh, power of attorney for health care. Who has legal standing to make decisions? She or the wife? For the wife, simple decision. <laughs> she is empowered to make all medical decisions on his behalf. So, made for a very interesting case early in my ethics career. Okay. Any questions with this stuff? What I, I believe they removed life support subsequently on the bimbo's decision. I mean, uh, could be. And, and it was humorous because she really didn't come in as a very articulate. Um, 
she was not a scholar of the Western Hemisphere <laughs> who came in. That was that made it even more, shall we say, entertaining. You know, if she came in, if the, you know, if it's the other way around and the wife was a little ditzy and she was a pretty bright lady, but no, the wife was a nice lady, very nice. And but that's the way that goes. Okay. When you get into your practices, what do you think will be the most significant ethical dilemma that you will encounter? Which do you think will be the worst ones? End of life. Do not resuscitate. We did a study in our EMS system oh, quite a few years ago. We published it. In, uh, DNRs, do not resuscitate, was the most d difficult one for them. Why? A couple of reasons. Everybody know what a do not resuscitate is, DNR. That means... We ain't going to do nothing when the time comes, when your heart stops or you stop breathing. Okay. What if we don't know, and we start the resuscitation, particularly for paramedics, but you start, it could be in the hospital, it could be anywhere in your office. You start the resuscitation, it could be right here. You start the resuscitation, you don't know the patient is a DNR, and then somebody comes in and says, they're a DNR. Do you stop or do you continue? What do you do? It's very difficult. What about families wanting no resuscitation? Families not wanting resuscitation, but they have no documentation of a DNR. What would you do? What would my paramedics do? The patient goes down, cardiac arrest, they're, they're coding the patient, they're working them. Family says they're a DNR. They don't have the documentation. What do you do? You work them to the level of your training. Okay. How do I know they're telling the truth? How do I know that's really the family? Got to do it. How do we know they're not looking for an insurance policy? What about improperly completed documentation? If you ever work in a nursing home or in an environment where you receive nursing home patients, I will bet every one of you, anyone here right now, 80% of the documentation on DNRs is inaccurate and wrong. You got people who don't know what time of day it is for 30 years initialing. You got people being appointed power of attorney for health care who are not. They're just paying the bills. So there's a lot of really shaky things with that. Keep that in mind. What about if you have a patient that you're taking care of and you think you can do something for them? You really think you can take good care of them and they're a DNR? How do you feel about that? That's kind of rough. Patient has a cardiac arrest. You really think you can do something, but they're a DNR. You've got to honor it. Okay? So what do we really mean by a DNR? What you're really saying is when the time comes and it's really ball game. I don't want a tube in every orifice. I don't want you doing all that magic to me. Let me go peacefully. Isn't that what we're really saying? But that's not the way it plays out in the hospital all the time. But it becomes a very interesting thing on how that, that goes. Right now, younger people, you ain't going to die. You guys are going to live for a long time. Hopefully you do. You know, you guys are you're going to be okay. As one gets, so you don't even think about this stuff. As you get older, you start to thinking of other things. When you become 50 or 60, you know, I want to be able to maintain the same lifestyle I got. I still want to run the marathon. I still want to do things. That's relevant to me in terms of my, my, my care, my life. When you're 80, I don't want somebody changing my diaper. How we look at things changes very dramatically, and you guys need to think, how are those people thinking? What are they thinking? Not what you're thinking, what you would want or not want. What are they thinking? Keep that in mind. Okay, example would be a patient who's got a slow type of leukemia. Okay, they make themselves a chronic lymphocytic leukemia, if you're familiar with that. Ain't going to kill you for 10, 20 years. But they want to be a DNR because when the time comes, you know, I don't want you doing stuff. They get shot. Am I going to honor their DNR? 
You know, you see how, I mean, I should, but whatever. Okay. Um, I'll give you an interesting case. This is a true case. Uh, I run the paramedic program in South Dakota County. I play volunteer fireman, too. I went out to a nursing home with the guys once for a patient that says in cardiac arrest. It was near where I was living. We get there. The nurses are doing CPR on the middle, just like this. There's a dining area, a aisle in the middle. They're doing CPR on this guy. Okay. Hopefully you guys will know how to do CPR. Because nursing home CPR historically, yeah, they're, they're doing something to this guy's chest. I'm not sure what. So we, we assume CPR, and we're, we're coding the guy, and paramedics getting ready to intubate him. A nurse comes running out with a thing saying, he's a DNR. Yeah, right. Take a look at it. It was 100% accurate. It was legitimate. It was filled out perfectly correct. So what would you do? The guy's straight line, no heartbeat, not breathing. What would you do? Stop. Okay. That would assumedly be the right ethical thing to do. I take a look, and you know, we're in a dining area, and there's a feeding chair right next to where they're working the patient. On the feeding chair, on the, um, the shelf, is some diced up hot dog. So I'm wondering here, you know? So the paramedic who's there starts to intubate the patient, puts a laryngoscope tube in there. I grab what's called a McGill's forceps, the thing to kind of grab stuff. He takes a look. He goes, oh, fill in the blanks. I hand him the, just hand him the McGill's. He takes out a piece of hot dog. We bag the patient a little bit, some, you know, Andrew bagging him. He wakes up. Take him to the hospital, gets discharged in two days. Okay, he was 20 years off when we started. Now he's 25 years off. Okay, he's still a Cubs fan, no matter how you look at it. But <laughs> how to go there? How to go there? Sorry. Um, the uh, I'm from New York. I can care less. But, uh, but w did I do the wrong thing? No. Was, one can make a very strong case that I was delinquent ethically for resuscitating a patient with a legitimate DNR. But his reason for a cardiac arrest had nothing to do with his underlying medical problems. It was something that was in the middle, intercurrent disease. So those are the kind of things that can happen. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, let me, let me challenge you guys a little bit. See what you think about this. You've got you're, you've got, you're in an emergency department and you've got one intensive care bed. Okay, one intensive care bed. I've got four patients. Which one's going to get the bed? An 85-year-old guy who just had a heart attack and is still having some chest pain. Second patient. So 85-year-old guy with a heart attack, still having pain. He would need critical care, right? Okay. A 22-year-old patient with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head who has brain stem function only and is intermittently hypotensive, losing his blood pressure. Is he going to survive? No. Somebody want to add something to his potential? Organ donation. Seven people may survive if we take him. A 42-year-old patient with known metastatic breast cancer who presented with temperature, low blood count, and a small bowel obstruction. She needs critical care. She's not, gonna, she's not doing too good. Her prognosis is dismal. And the fourth one, a 42-year-old post-sclerotherapy patient. That's a thing you do for cirrhosis of the liver. So it's a 42-year-old drunk with known cirrhosis and esophageal varices. Those are vessels that bleed. These patients can really bleed a lot, get pretty, pretty messy, who presents with vo uh, vomiting blood, 
after a drinking binge? Does he need intensive care? So, okay, you are emperor. Who's going to get the bed? The, car, the guy with the heart attack. How many guys are going to give it to the heart attack guy? Now, you're still staying down in the emergency room, but who can get the better one-on-one -on -one care as opposed to in the ER where you have to do three-on-one, four-on-one? Who's giving it to the guy with the MI, with the heart attack? Ah, okay, why? He's still having chest pain. He's not stable. Okay, but it's going to be, again, difficult. Take care, take care of him. Do you feel because he's 85 less of a need? And I tell you, he got the heart attack after sh shoveling the snow prior to messing around with the neighbor's wife. <laughs> Does that take away his uh, viability? Okay, you get the idea. He's a healthy guy. Okay, so, you, so, we're, so we're, we ain't doing much for him. Okay. How many, how many are going to give it to the 22-year-old gunshot wound where we can get organs? He's going to die. He's going to die. But we might be able to use him as an organ donor. Might. He's hypotensive. Blood pressure is low. We've got to bump up that blood pressure so we can keep perfusion of his organs, keep the blood going, but we might be able to. How many are going to give it to him? He loses. How many are going to give it to the metastatic breast cancer patient with the fever, low blood count, who is septic, very infected, plus has a bowel obstruction? Okay, she's up front now. How many are going to give it to the drunk who just had a drinking binge who's bleeding badly? The rest of you guys are waiting for shift change. Okay, very difficult decision. They did this as an actual study. They found... 40% gave it to the guy with the heart attack, 11% to the gunshot wound, 29% to the breast cancer patient, and 20% to the drunk. Okay, interesting. What would I do? In this situation, I would probably give it, actually, I would probably give it to the drunk. The reason being, he is the most labor-intensive of all the patients right now. And I can least afford to have two nurses in the ED taking care of them. Whereas upstairs, I have more, more ability. The heart attack patient can go one-on-one. -on -one. The breast cancer patient go one-on-one. -on -one. The, the gunshot wound is a, is a little bit leery there too, but he's going to need some ongoing care until we can get the people in for organ harvesting. So I would probably go with that one. Okay? Now, we would take a look at it. You guys would say, well, he's a drunk. What, what, you know, what's he doing for our society, right? He's, he's taking away all our resources. Should we really treat him? Right? I mean, does that come to mind? Ethically. He's utilizing all our resources. How many of you guys had red meat yesterday? Or in the past week? All right. You guys are, you guys are foolish. You're having red meat. Your cardiac risks. You know better. Why should I treat you? Screw you guys. Why should I treat you? Think, think about think about that in when we start making decisions about who has credibility, who has legal standing in our society where it's called a slippery slope it's a very dangerous thing with Henrietta Lacks nobody gave a crap about her right? they just went ahead took her cells without her knowing and didn't even give her medical, medical care is that the right thing to do? so we've got to be real careful what we think of when we say who gets care, who doesn't Okay. Getting back real quick to our, 
uh, emphysema patient. It was nice that most of you guys were going to honor his wishes. You've never been sued, so when you get in that point, if you ever get sued or you get a deposition, you'll see how horrendous it's horror for the person, and you tend to go along with the the, you, you tend to go along with the loudest person so that nobody bothers you and you don't get sued. But that's not always the ethical thing to do. So you've got to live with yourself. I, there, there's two rules that I follow. It's the next day and the five-year rule. But the decision I'm going to make now, well, when I look in the mirror the next day, am I going to be able to look in the mirror? Am I going to feel comfortable with what I'm doing now? And in five years, when I look back at this situation, is it going to bother me? So if I had to call in a surgeon in the middle of the night and it wound up he didn't have to come in and he gave me a lot of crap for it, am I going to remember that in five years? Nah, I don't care. If I did not call him in and the patient died, will I remember that? So use that as a, a framework. Okay, I've been told that you guys, Brown, now I'm supposed to stop. Questions, please. The question is regarding HIPAA. Everybody's aware of HIPAA. That means you can't. That means when, when a patient comes into your office, the secretary or the receptionist can't say, oh, hi, Mr. Jones. I understand you have a urethral discharge. And everybody hears that. You can't do that. There's confidentiality, and it's a very good law. Um, I'm the patient. I've got to say to my docs who I want to know what's wrong. So I've told my family. So now the doc is comfortable telling the family, but yet nobody wants to tell me. That's the problem. So they tell the family that they got something bad, but oh, you'll kill them if you tell them. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. The doctor should say, I need to talk to your family member. If you'd like to be there when I give them the bad news, you're, you certainly can be there, so you'll see that I do it in a gentle manner. But what about three in the morning when they're asking you as a nurse, and they're not going to talk to the doc for another six hours? You're supposed to say, you'll have to talk that over with your doc. The report's not back yet. Report's not back yet. <laughs> Slick. Okay. Okay. Other, other questions? Okay. I know you guys get to the class. I'll hang out if anybody has any questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.